Philosophers. Philosophers. Well, today, I, I kind of te- teased you with a topic, I guess. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about perception-driven reality was the way I put it, but you summed it up pretty nicely and to confirmation bias, which is kind of what we're talking about, I guess. Um, the one area about... I'm just going to go ahead and launch into an example of, of where I think this occurs. When you look at economies, right, um, especially economies, like parts of economies like stock markets and things like that, a, a lot of the value that gets traded is done on perception, you know, like a just to name an instance that's going on in the world right now with the outbreak of a potentially global pandemic, you know, of a virus, people start hoarding their money. So when people start to panic, people will shelter their money. The economy slows down and production slows down, right, to match it. So one of the examples given is that say there is a new illness that comes out. We won't we won't go all clickbaity. We'll just say there's this new illness that comes out, and it has a very high mortality rate. But we can manufacture a, a cure for this. But the 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 cure to manufacture is very it's very laborious to make. We'll say. So, if you let everyone go into a panic, your ability to produce this cure decreases. And that feeds the cycle of people panicking because people are dying and they have no confidence in the solution. And then you spiral downward into a terrible incident. But say the public at large is kept optimistic. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. It's just like the flu. No big deal. And production ticks up and continues trucking right along and enough of the cure is created that it it actually does yield a result that you're looking for so in indiv- i think you can say that there's also instances of similar things in individuals uh lives you know having a good attitude people always tell you as a piece of advice when they're trying to get something is to have a good attitude about it and stay positive and you'll get through it, especially when we talk about hard times but and, and there is i think something to that you know, but at the same time, it's it's a similar situation. It's buying yourself enough, I guess, resolve to continue through something and achieve your way and achieve something that'll get you out of it faster. But when because when you're more let down, you're not as productive. You know what I'm saying? So that's what I guess what I was kind of meaning by reality-driven perception. How if if the public perception of something is a certain way, there are scenarios that you can actually achieve the outcome if I don't want to say if you deceive but if you choose to believe a certain outcome over the others even if it's not necessarily likely but that's what do you think about that right so that yeah there's a lot to be said about how our perceptions change our behavior in ways that are self-fulfilling um by coincidence i was watching uh an interview with uh with adam savage in which he was asked uh what the most dangerous thing he ever did in his uh career sorry the scariest thing he ever did in his career um and in particular his uh his uh show that he was on mythbusters and so there was one that involved him being uh underwater in a car yes um and uh there there came a moment when he realized that he was out of air and and he you know cortisol begins to spike adrenaline starts starts pumping and uh and things start happening and uh, his bit of advice that he said to himself to uh to try to get out of it was calm people live tense people die and he cleared his head and figured out his way out um to to spare the details mm-hmm. um but you know there are many situations like that where you know you're you're in a dangerous situation and the the worst thing you can do is panic about how much danger you're in it's only going to make it worse you know right. so when you think to yourself oh i'm going to die well you probably will Where, whereas if you if you try to you know be more uh uh oh what's the the word that cognitive about it 
you know, remain calm, you know, I can figure this out, it's going to be okay, then you can clear your mind to do the work that it needs to do to be able to get you out of it if it's possible. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that there is, it's the same thing when you're dealing with groups of people, like the the old, good old saying goes, a person is smart, but people are stupid, you know, and, and there's something to be said about that because we are social creatures and because we use mimicry as a way to evolve, de- develop, uh, that never really goes away. There's not really an off switch for that. So when you get a room of a hundred people and one person begins to panic, that panic is contagious. So all it takes is one person to lose their resolve and it can quickly spread to others. And the more people it spreads to, the more powerful it becomes. Um, so when you're dealing with an individual, it's easier to think about because it's, as the individual, all you have to do as the individual in question is to have some resolve and to think cognitively about what you're going through, your circumstance, and make that acknowledgement that, you know, panicking people die and people who think and don't panic live, you know. And I, I would say that your ability to make that decision for yourself is easy in isolation. I think the difficulty to maintain that state of mind when surrounded by other people gets more difficult. And I won't say as a, ge- I say as a general rule, but I do think the ability for an individual to be influenced by their surroundings also changes. Um, we, we've kind of talked about an area and uh, a metric that people like to talk about for how easily influenced someone is. And we kind of talked about, we've noticed a difference in ourselves when it comes to being influenced. Um, I'm a more extroverted person and there are pros and cons to being introverted and extroverted. One of the pros to being introverted or extroverted is that you, you are, you can adapt to situations with other people very easily. But the downside is the ability, the thing that allows you to do that is not on a switch. Right, it's not entirely under your control. No, it's, well, and for good and bad, you know. Yes. In the good way, it's, I can... You don't have to think about blending in with people. I just do it. But the bad side is, I'm more susceptible to panic and the negative parts of association, like peer pressure and things like that. Um, I find it a lot more difficult to go against the grain and to say no even when I personally would disagree with something, and it's something I've had to work on. And it's even manifested itself in other subconscious behaviors like the way I talk. You know, I think you and I have talked about this before, where when I go around my family, who has much more distinctly Southern accents than I normally speak with, if you catch me coming right out of a dinner with them, or right off the phone with one of them, my accent is very different. It just changes. And then it slowly kind of comes back to normal as it I'm no longer under their influence. So, and and that's one thing that I worry about is that, and, and it, I'm glad that I'm aware of it, but it also has put a lot more strain on my mind because of it. Like I'm having to second guess myself all the time. You know, do I say things the way I do because that's just the way I would say them? Or is it because I'm in the company of the person I'm in company with? And it gets real fun when I'm, in mixed company with a bunch of people that I typically deal with on an individual basis because that same thing is now happening all all at once all at with once. multiple people with yes. multiple inputs and the yes. out, and and normally it doesn't have to mix those outputs but when I'm surrounded by most of those people it does and one thing I've noticed is that it tends to change a little bit who am I facing? So who am I directly speaking to at that moment? Who is my primary focus? It will change just a little bit. But the biggest thing that drives how I speak, I've come to notice is who I care the most about. So like a good mitigating factor, when my wife and I are around my family, I don't change. But when it's just me and my family, it changes. And that's just an interesting thing. Um, I think about it as well. But that's a good example of how it doesn't matter how much individual resolve on my own I can muster. As soon as you put me into a new environment where there are others that might panic, all of a sudden the um, the amount of effort I have to exert to continually be resolved 
increases. Um, but there are other th- there are other factors I'm sure to that too. You know, um, I think ignorance is another factor. Um, when you're looking at something like a like a viral outbreak, most people aren't doctors. Most people don't understand what a virus really is. You know, and not only that, but there's a second metric that lies perpendicular to that that when you don't understand something, are you overconfident about what you understand? Or are you underconfident about what you don't understand? Because you don't know what you don't know. But some people can speak with a very high degree of confidence about something they know nothing about. And these are the people that everyone hates to work with. <laughs> um, and then you have the opposite. People who might be the most confident person in the world, I'm, I'm sorry, may know the most about it. I'm going to call him sh- the Sean Murrays of the world. No, do you know who that is? No. He's the lead developer for No Man's Sky. Okay. Um, the guy is a very competent developer. He's a very good team leader and a tech lead. Terrible social skills. And so he's never he never speaks confidently about what he's talking about. And so when the whole debacle of, well, he lied and all these interviews came out, people took him as a liar because they thought he was just bold-faced lying and he was just bad at it. But in reality, he spoke with absolute confidence on what he was talking about. He just didn't come across that way. So... Those are the two things as well that I think kind of influence that, you know, like um, as far as which one's worse. I mean, I guess that's up to an in individual interpretation, you know. Sure. Um, like, can you think of a good instance from your personal experience where you've had a person who was overconfident and knew nothing what they were talking about and how that changed the situation or the opposite. I don't know that I've had many times in my experience where I've been around somebody who was speaking confidently about something they didn't know about. And I felt a need to speak up about it because I thought that it would make a difference. I never like, like this hasn't happened with anyone that I've really worked with on something. It's just something I needed to, to talk about. You know, normally when something like that happens, I will, I will question it. I will put it to them that I think that they're wrong, not necessarily in those terms, um, but it, it's normally inconsequential. What do you think about in a situation like um, like a viral outbreak or something like that where the information you would need to know, it, this person's ignorant of that, are they more of a danger if they're overconfident or are they more of a danger if they're underconfident and they do know what they're talking about? I think they're more dangerous if they're overconfident. Okay. I think that's I think that can be said in general. People who are overconfident about what it is that they think that they know are more dangerous. Um because they are willing to confidently try things that won't work. Okay. Or confidently put forward accusations that aren't true. Okay. Because, see, I'm trying to reconcile this in my head, you know, dealing with that, this, this scenario, the original scenario in which you need people to continue to work to produce the, the cure for this thing. But only the people that are overconfident and ignorant will be the ones to get out there and still go to work. Because, like, ah, I won't get sick. It's not that bad. <laughs> no, I don't, you know, they don't, see, they don't see it for the threat it is. They say, hey, only, you know, only 2% of the people who get this thing dies. That's actually a pretty high mortality rate. Yes. You know, most people don't think about that. Like 2%. One in 50. Yeah, one in fifty. Um, you know how many fifty peoples there are in the world? Like a lot of a lot. Yeah, but those people, being the way that they are, can actually contribute to lowering that number, even though they're doing it ignorantly, and and that's an and that's an interesting thing. You know, I I'm gonna kind of pivot on the topic here, to be honest with you. Um, that's I I get a similar. I had to. I have similar discussions with people um, when I start talking about libertarianism. Okay, so I'm gonna yes. pivot really hard. I'm yes. sorry. I had a feeling this is where this was going, but that's okay. I mean, we got are you confident about that. Yeah, of course, always. Um, uh, so one thing I, I often get into discussions with people when we start talking about libertarianism is, uh, well. What, what are some of the barriers, you know, like, why can't we just do that? And one of the 
common answers I get is, well, if just if everyone just respected this, it, and it's always some form of, well, if everyone just thought the same way about X, it would be possible. Right. But that's kind of what communism is, you know? Um, and that's why I think, um, and comms, you know, there, there is, I think that's why as a movement and as a group of people, they exist, is they're at least acknowledging that fact that you have to have everybody on the same page. And they're not wrong. They're just acknowledging that that's how it is. Now, how they choose to deal with it, I disagree with, but I can't tell them that they're wrong about that. It makes it easier to uphold any system when we're all on the same page and we're all in agreement. Right. If only we could just do the impossible, then we could do the impossible. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But the... I hate using the word diversity these days because it always comes with all many all kinds of asterisks attached to it, but I'm going to use it in its literal definition. But be, but having a diversity of the way people behave, you know, I think is one of those things that allows us as a species to be more dynamic when responding to certain problems. You know, like take, for example, like going back to the example of the viral outbreak, you do need people that will be confident and just go out there and try something, you know, even if there's a low degree of, if there's a high risk and low degree of possibility and you need martyrs to get out there and just fall on the sword to, to figure it out. I mean, shoot, we wouldn't know what we could eat if we weren't for people like that, you know, but at the same time, you also need the people that are going to be super cautious because those are the people that make sure that they learn from the the guy, the overconfident guy who just died eating the wrong kind of mushrooms. You know, they're going to pass that on to their offspring, not his, but, you know, and make sure it goes forward. Um, anyway, that was a little jut to the side, I suppose. But um, back to the original topic at hand, which was perception-driven reality. There's also a name for when someone does this and it leads them outside of what everyone else considers to be normal. <laughs> um, and it's delusion. You know, that's that's another name for what it is. We only call it delusion when everyone else sees it as harmful. But um, that's an interesting state to be in. You know, uh, I've often wondered... Cause I, I, I don't know if I can say this with any kind of authority, but I wonder... Have you ever been delusional about something and then in hindsight realized it? Or is it just me? (laughs) Or the more mild form, looking at something through rose-tinted glasses. As they say. I'm assuming you've heard that expression. Yes. Okay. Nothing, I mean... I've been... Confident, very confidently mistaken about things before, but I don't. I can't think of a time when I would look back on it and say, "Wow, I was delusional about that." Well, as an extrovert, let me tell you, <laughs> um, I feel like I have been. Uh, one of the biggest times in my life that I think I was in a situation like that was around middle school, going into junior high school, and uh, I, I was never really bullied as a kid. Okay, for those of you who've never seen me and probably never will, I'm fairly tall. And I've always been bigger than people my age. And even as a ma- and as a male, I I actually was never shorter than the females that I was of the same age with, who typically go through puberty first and experience their growth spurts. So, just by the nature of my physical appearance, I've never really been much of the subject of bullying, right? And so, I never felt bullied. So I never felt like I was. Okay, that acknowledged with watching bullying occur to others when I was younger, the people who got bullied were those who were more typically socially outcast, right? That didn't do what was normal, right? And so mixing those two acknowledgements together, I was like, well, I'm normal, (laughs) you know? I dress like everyone else. I'm a pretty cool dude. I get along with everybody I talk to because everyone I talk to enjoys talking to me. 
and I talked to like five people. So uh. that that must be fine. You know, and exactly. Like looking at it from external external sources, it it's obvious. But when my life consisted of a very set routine of getting up every day, going to school, doing the same classes, talking to the same people. And this was before I even really played games. This is when I was, well, I guess I, I did game a little bit back in the day. But I had a very consistent schedule and a very small circle of friends. I was very much so in a bubble and isolated from what else was going on. I had no romantic interests at the time, you know. So it wasn't like I was looking external to my group at all. And I distinctly remember uh, there was a new kid that came into school uh, not long after that. He's actually a really small dude. Like, he's at least a foot and a half shorter than I was. Um, and a third my, my weight. And third, a third my poundage. <laughs> um, but uh, that dude tore me to shreds one day, verbally, anyway. And just started dropping all these truth bombs. Like, you know, like your shoes are whack, <laughs> you know, your jacket's whack. Why you got a jacket with rips in it? And I was like, I thought this was a cool jacket, you know, because I did. I liked that jacket. I thought it was cool. And don't be wrong. I, there's nothing wrong with you liking something that other people don't like. There's a difference in preference. But, you know, Joe, you stink. You know, you don't, you, you shower like twice a week. You know what I mean? You, you, you do this, you do that. You're late to everything. You know, started just telling me all the things that most people who I, the very limited people that I ran with at the time also did or didn't care about. So I had this huge gaping blind spot. And when I would do a self-evaluation of, am I okay? <laughs> you know, yeah, everything's fine. I'm killing it. I'm doing just fine. And I, I would say that I was borderline delusional at that point, that I, I thought everything was fine and that everything was going to be fine and that I was just a normal, you know, teenager. And, but it, was, it wasn't that, you know. And uh, I, I feel like when we talk about, you know, echo chambers, you know, that's something that gets brought up a lot, right? We, we often talk about them in like a political way because politics is such a driving stake in the culture in the cultural zeitgeist right now, you know. But I think there are little holes in this stuff everywhere, you know. And, and, and ever since then, I'm now I'm I feel like underconfident about my state of being, you know. And that wasn't until I started driving with metrics, but that kind of goes back to having that cognitive resolve is looking at things objectively, you know, if I was looking at things back then of like, how many people do I talk to, you know, how, what am I eating? You know I mean? Like I was a pretty big kid, but I never felt like I was that big. You know, I had the exact opposite problem. Most people suffer from is that I was overconfident about my physical appearance, which again, not bad problems to have. I came up from a lot of shortcomings from that. I mean, I guess it's another area of it, you know? Um, anyway, we're gonna move on from that topic and go to another area in which perception drives reality, I guess, a little bit. Um, in interpersonal relationships, especially when we start talking about more romantic relationships, right? And this is full full closure disclaimer. This is not a pickup artist kind of podcast. Uh, you know, we don't give dating advice or whatever. But I would say that most people tend to be more attracted to, and, and whether it be romantically or just being around as a person people that are that come across as confident you know that's one thing i think everyone gets told at some point especially young men is like well just be confident you know and and you'll do fine um but i think it's interesting is that i i think that that confidence comes from the way you see yourself it has nothing to do with how you think other people see you it's how you see yourself because you'll always kind of trust what you think over what other people will tell you i mean do you agree sure um and so just by thinking you're the man, <laughs> you can be the man, you know, like it's, it's that simple sometimes. Um, but I feel like one thing we've kind of ignored through all this discussion so far is hitting the brick wall of reality <laughs> um, and what to do when that happens, you know, like, what do you do when you know, you've been making it on, you've been faking it until you're making it 
and then all of a sudden you don't make it no more. <laughs> you know, like what do you do in those kinds of situations? I guess. Like, have you ever have you ever been in a fake it till you make a situation? A good example being like a imposter syndrome and and new employment because. Well, yeah. I mean, I've experienced imposter syndrome, but the thing with imposter syndrome is that you're not faking it, but you feel like you are. You know, and you're you're worried about you know when when you're going to be found out, but it turns out you're just as competent as the next guy. Um, but let's see. I mean, times where I faked it till I made it. Um. I, I think there have there have been times where I did that but it always worked <laughs> where I where I faked it good enough and then before I could be found out the time expired or whatever right like, like it became no longer relevant right hmm that's interesting. Very interesting. Like the 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 optimal outcome for fake it till you make it is fake it is fake it and actually make it. <laughs> fake it then make it and then get out <laughs> before you're yes. found out. Yes. And bail and then bail. Exactly. Um so I guess this is another thing we kind of t- before the show started we kind of co- we barely covered and that was uh Do you think there is value in having the ignorance sometimes that's required for an uninitiated person to be confident about something? Like like to give you a good example maybe is like when you're in school, especially in like science and math class, they'll tell you just do this and it'll work out and so you do it a certain way that you're taught and it works out fine you become super confident in that method of doing things but you realize that that method you were given is not going to work every time it was only given to you just as a placeholder and then you move on to a higher level of education and they tell you all right everything we just taught you that's all wrong <laughs> we just gave that to you to get by this we you were faking it till you made it and you didn't even realize it till you made it but now you can't fake it no more you know what i mean do you think there's value in i don't know if that really qualifies as faking it and making it um i, I mean because because what they're what they're doing in cases like that is giving you a simplified special purpose case like, well in, in mathematics the literal name for this is a special case um you know, where like like so some of the formulas that you might have learned in high school are really just special cases of larger, more general theorems in mathematics, but with your high school education you are not equipped to understand the greater theorem because you need to build an underlying mathematical understanding in order to get there, and not everyone needs to do that, so we don't. So we give you the partial one that is good enough for the things that you need to do, but it's not a general purpose thing. So you're not faking it, you're just not equipped for general problem solving. Okay. So maybe in a different example. <laughs> um uh let's I think I think a time when ignorance is, it might be valuable, like this is often said about children who are you know apparently by definition ignorant. Um that confident ignorance will make you try things that nobody else has tried before because it is just assumed that it won't work. Right. Um, so things things can get discovered when you are willing to attempt something without actually knowing what it is you're doing. Um, like there have been many, many proverbs told about people who invented things by mistake. They were trying to do one thing but didn't realize what something was going to do, but it turned into something else that happened to be useful. Okay. Do you think that has more intrinsic value than, than actually knowing what you're doing? Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> it, it is, it is useful, but obviously actual knowledge is better. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, well, I, it depends. It depends. 
actual knowledge is better because by definition, if you have actual knowledge, then you can use it to make predictions that work. And so this is just intrinsically useful. You know, I want to do this thing. If I try this, will it work? Well, let me calculate that. No. Okay, then I won't do it. Or yes, and I will do it and things work out. And that's how we get technology and all kinds of stuff. Um, but it is, it also, it, it does reduce your chance of entering into a situation uh, where something happens that you didn't expect. Um, so like maybe, you know, something, well, this, this happens in, in science a lot where we have part of the picture, but not the whole picture. And so we may not be willing to try something because our current understanding is that it won't work, but it takes somebody who tries it just to see to figure out, oh, well, actually in this special case, something different happens. Yeah. I think it goes all back to having a having a healthy mixture of both, I think is important um, in the general case, but even in something, I think, I think that, well, cause really what I'm getting at here, cause I, I also kind of defeated what I just said, because I, I said, if you have real knowledge, then you'll make predictions that work. And then I said, but you can't really have real knowledge because things happen that you don't expect. So I guess what I'm really saying is it's not that ignorance is valuable. It's that a willingness to try things that you think won't work is valuable. Hmm. Which is basically science. You're, you know, I think that this is going to be the case, but let's test it and see what if I do it this way? What happens? Right. Well, and you're correct. That is science. You know, that is how it works. But I also feel like that on paper is how it works. But I feel like maybe, well, actually, I know why this is because research is expensive. <laughs> People tend to not want to pay for mistakes. To Even though you're learning something, people don't, the backers of research tend to not want to, you know, if we found the way to make a light bulb, people will be less likely to fund research into all the other ways that it would probably not work to make a light bulb, right? I doubt anyone cares. And it's a huge gamble, especially with and with low odds because we've already have good reasons as to why it doesn't work the way it works, at least according to our understanding. You know, I guess the, the thing that I'm trying to figure out is, is there... Because it, there, there's the two cases. There's the acknowledgement that in reality, there will be people who will try things because they're confident and ignorant. And every so often, I'll, you'll get a lottery winner that will come up with something, you know. And and I think it's funny because those are the people that are a lot of the time championed as great minds. You know, I think that's interesting um, because they thought outside the box you know um and so there it seems that based on observation that there is something about that way of doing things that we find somewhat valuable but only when it succeeds but because when it succeeds it's so rewarded you still have those willing to take the risk and then there's the other case where you don't necessarily, you know, you, the, the more practical case where what is the goal you're trying to achieve, you know, and that is the more applied sciences place, you know, um, because I, I think most science that's done these days is applied science. It's you're doing science, but you're trying to achieve a specific outcome. You're not doing pure science. Or what is, is that? What they call it? Theoretical, theoretical. Science, yes. Yeah, where you're just coming up. With you're stuff. on. You're on the cutting edge, trying to, you know, come up with new ways of framing the entire situation. Right, which is that area that yields practically. It, it its immediate results are practically useless. Um. In, in the immediacy, right. like usually. A, usually, like a good example would be that, oh, hey, we have 
doing this science, like say we set out to do an experiment where we were able to prove that it might be possible to reverse entropy, but the amount of energy required would be more energy than is in a galaxy. It's like, okay, but it's Neat. all theoretical. Neat. What are we going to well, do with We don't that? have more energy than in a galaxy, so cool. Yeah. Thanks so, for wasting my time. And yep. all on a theory that says it might work. Right. You know, but that's still science, you know. Yes. And, th- and I think, I actually think that that difference might be a lot of the confusion behind people that don't understand science very much is that the science we get shown all the time when you, you, most people don't hear the word science or scientist unless it's attached to a product especially a new product and or or a product that a company that doesn't make that product doesn't want you to buy anymore you know um but so so i guess going back to the example the the original question posed you would rather see and don't put the words in your mouth but you would rather see people doing pure science instead of just running wild smacking rocks together trying to make something work right right um where you do have knowledge you do have understanding you're not ignorant of the subject but you're doubting you're you're intentionally doubting your confidence about your knowledge set instead of being doubtful or not being doubtful but just being ignorant right right yes that's fair right being being hesitant and humble about your conclusions is more valuable than just being ignorant right and stumbling upon something interesting right to kind of hit back on that uh original point that we kind of just glossed over not the original point but the to hit back on something we kind of glossed over the human response to the lucky guy who happens to stumble upon something great uh it kind of makes me think about a, a documentary I watched about other humans, right? Um, just to lay the groundwork. We are not the only species of human who have ever existed. And not only that, at one point in time, there were, I, I think nowadays, the numbers up to a dozen other cousin species of yep. humans that were all out and about doing things. The most popular that most people might know about is Neanderthals, but we all kind of existed around the same time yet all the other ones went extinct eventually right right um except for you know sasquatch still pending on that one but uh that was a joke david you can laugh or not tee he <laughs> um but one of the things that was discussed because people were always trying to figure out well, why is that why did we make it and why did these other species not make it? And one of the things that was talked about is they were trying to look at unique things about our brand of human. Like, what are things that we did that no one else did? And how much did those things play a part in helping us survive? One of the biggest aspects that helped us survive, it's believed, is something similar to what we talked about. It's that we were the first species of human that migrated a way farther than our cousin species. We were more likely to move to in away from a dangerous circumstance. So uh, there was an ice age that occurred, for example, we're homo sapiens sapiens, right? Is that what we're, we're technically yes okay but normally we shorten it to homo sapiens even though there was another homo sapiens previously but we're the one that's left so we get to make the rules well in this case i'm talking about a time when that other species may have existed but i'm i'm not a uh anthropologist to be honest right but so i'm glossing here but one of the things that at least at the time that i the time of me learning about this was held as a common belief is that you know, when the ice age came down, we moved. <laughs> we got away from it. We we just decided not to stay where it was cold. And that required certain technologies that no other species, even though they had technology, you know, spears, atlatls, things like that. They they made clothing, fire, they had shelters, you know. We invented boats. 
because, well, I don't like it here, and there might be something over there. And I know for a fact I'm going to die because I've watched too many people here die. I'm probably going to die if I stay here, so I'd rather risk it and go somewhere else. That was a formulation that it seems that our brand of human made that others didn't, right? right? And so I do think there is that same way of thinking that, well, I'm just going to try it. <laughs> you know, we're just going to see how it works. Um, maybe that might be the ancestral form of our appreciation. And that might be the characteristic that we appreciate even now in the, you know, the ignorant person going out and hitting it big and making a huge discovery we all kind of resonate that i think for that reason and the other reason that we all kind of see ourselves i think in the most successful of us you know i think it's easy for us to look at someone far more successful than ourselves or someone who achieved a bunch and because of the underdog appreciation we have as well that notion that perception of well he did it or she did it you know they there was they had a one in a million chance and they went out there and did it so i always have a chance even if practically speaking i don't right well there there's a very brief term for the thing that you're talking about there that attribute called bravery uh you know willingness to try something even without knowing whether it'll work i would sit, go even further and to say even with a likelihood of it not working right you know but but that covers the same scenario as yes. well you know you're gonna stand stand up against the bully or whatever you're right. probably gonna get beaten up but people will respect you for being brave right for doing the thing that now and then the real question is is it doing the thing that no one else will do is bravery a is the is the bravery market built on scarcity or is it like, for example, if everyone was brave like that, would it be seen the same way, do you think? I can't say for sure, but I don't I don't think it's a given that people would stop respecting bravery because you see things in something like uh, intellectual communities where people still respect fellow intellectuals for being intellectual, you know, even among their own company people. Or, you know, you see somebody who is... Um, you know, maybe uh, less experienced, younger and less experienced than you. Um, and they they try something that, you know, that you have done many times before and, you know, might find very easy, but they try it for the first time and are very, you know, uh, cautious about it, but they do it anyway to, to see. And, you know, people still feel, feel proud of people for, for things like that, even though um, they're not really special. Yeah, okay. I was just the thought um i mean bravery as a concept by itself is really interesting when you think about it so it's and the reason i asked is because i have oft heard people describe bravery as having the courage to do that's another one of those words that is ambiguous it's like okay thanks for that definition having the courage to do something that others don't and that's why i asked the question um which that leads naturally into, well, what does courage mean, you know? And uh, I feel like we could look it up, but I feel like we don't need to. I think that most people have a pretty, I wouldn't say instinctual, but we have a pretty core psychological resonance with words like bravery and courage. And... I think that's why those kinds of words kind of have persisted as long as they have fairly untarnished. You know, there are a lot of words that get their meanings misconstrued and worn out over time over, over inclusivity, you know, like they get too broadly applied. And so people stop caring about that word, but bravery and courage are, are two of those words that kind of hit home to, human character traits that we all kind of intrinsically understand. I think it's their words that are used to try to label a feeling, you know, even though you can demonstrate an action, whether you call that action courageous or brave, it comes down to your instinct on that. You know, I think 
I think that's why it's persisted the way it did. Um, I guess the last area, pop, 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 back to the original topic that I would talk about perception yielding reality is, and we've kind of left it to the last 15 minutes because I think it's fairly obvious, but it, you know, doing our due diligence here on philosophers, we should probably talk about it is, uh, the obvious ways that that can go wrong. Um, I watched a very interesting interview. Um, I forget the fellow's name who was conducting the interview, but he was a conservative advocate. And he, and, and I mean, British conservative. So he was advocating for the British style conservatism. You may know what I'm talking about. I think I know exactly where you're going. Go on. Okay. Well, one of the things that he was talking about is his qualms with liberalism. And when he uses the term liberalism, he's talking about everything from, you know, libertarian style liberalism all the way out to communist liberalism. And his bone to pick essentially was that those forms of thinking, those forms of political thought exist in such prominence because they do use reason. They do have reason, and they reason their way into doing things that they want to do. It's not that they just come up out of the blue. But his big bone to pick is that their fundamental, well, their starting point, their fundamentals for their liberalism is all based on the way things should be instead of the way things are. And so their perception about the world is all taken in the context of, well, in this perfect system, it doesn't fit like this. And we talk about this a lot, actually. We do this quite often. The The non-aggression principle is just a set of words. You know, it's, it's an assertion for how things should go. It's a principle right. that you can test in scenarios to see how well it would work. But even approaching reasoning from that angle is taking a rule and then trying to apply it to reality. I don't personally think there's anything wrong with that as far as thought experiments goes. Well, no, but his contention was that you should take your perceptions of reality and build your, and this is, this is honestly what conservatism really is at its core is let's, and it's, and why it's so deeply tied to tradition, right? Is let's look and see what we've done before. Let's look and see how things are right now. And let's try to just acknowledge that in some codified way. Right. And so that's how you get things like in the United States, where the Republicans being the more conservative party were against gay marriage, for example, because, well, when you just look around you, that's not something that happens in nature, they would say, or that's just not the way we've done things. You know, if you look at where you come from and you look at how he got here, that's never been a thing. So we can't facts, notwithstanding facts, notwithstanding, but, but still they're still coming from the same place, even if they're factually incorrect, that their way of thinking, they at least believe that. Yes, sure. But their way of thinking about it still follows true. Um, And that is they reason their way into, well, we should do X and we should build systems to support X because that's the way X is. And I, I think you you definitely know what kind of what, what interview I may be talking about at this point. No, actually, that's not where I thought you were going oh, with okay, it. Okay, cool. Um, we might have to talk about that later in the after show. Um, but the 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 result of that is that you end up with a pe- a group of people who are literally driving their reality based on their perceptions of the world. And that is the world is the way the world is, you know. And right. Yep. Yep. There's there's definitely issues with that. So let's see. Uh at the it's a well, it's it's fallacious in two ways. Uh firstly, a it's a sort of a naturalistic fallacy in which, you know, here here is how we are it's just how we are and therefore that is the way that it should be uh d- deriving uh, an odd from an is um so th- then 
Secondly, it is fallaciously use fallaciously employing inductive reasoning. This has worked until now, therefore it will always work. Right. But simple counterexamples can be can be given to that. Um for for those who may be wondering, uh let's say uh let, let's take a a natural resource, uh coal, let's say. Okay. Um we have been burning coal since we felt like burning things. Um therefore we can always burn coal. Cool. What happens when there's none left? Well burn coal. Right. <laughs> well, and I get what you're saying. I, I, I think though where I find this interesting is when you take it to I think it gets taken more dangerously when you take it to a place where you're not dealing necessarily with finite resources like that. Um, sure, yeah, I, I, I'm not saying that they are talking about things that are quite as clear as that, but the, the fact is it is easy to come up with counterexamples to, well, this has worked until now, therefore it always will work. Well, not necessarily. Right, but I guess the scenario that I would find more interesting to, to talk about would be going back to our original example of a scenario in which a scenario in which your perception can affect your outcome. Now, this is the confirmation bias being played out on a group scale or on a, on a greater scale, but uh, I'm just going to use the country of the United States as an example. Ever since 1945, the United States has been a world superpower, right? We've had, and thanks in large part to so to circumstance, you know, it's not and circumstance and just fortunate geography, you know, that those are the two things you can really, I think, attribute to America's dominance the way it is. Um, and I'm sure, you know, people will argue that, oh, well, it also has to do with the fact that we were free and, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's, there's okay. other factors. Sure. Okay. Whatever. But the two biggest ones being that your geography and that there happened to be a world war that devastated all of the other competing nations at the time on your technology at your tech level. So when you have all your infrastructure still in place while everyone else got there is just obliterated, you can afford to pull ahead, you know. And you can afford to make money off that rebuild. And then that can help you establish a lead that as long as your growth rate stays consistent because of the lead you gain, no one can ever catch you. In, in theory, if, if resources were unlimited, we'll say. I think one of the one of the things that I guess coming back to that example is you can believe you will be you know, you can believe that the United States will always be a great place and that it will always be the the world superpower because, well, especially nowadays, well, ever since I was born, that's just how it's been. And there is something to be said about having that attitude. That attitude, in my opinion, is what drove programs like NASA. You know, doing things that no one else had ever done because we are the best, you know, that cultural and you can call it patriotism nationalism whatever you want to call it that part of the culture of being the best and wanting to stay the best and doing things that no one else ever could right those attitudes definitely fueled further advancement you know it, costs aside they they fueled it you know and so when you get a situation like that where your confirmation bias pays off, people tend to double down on that and then they keep doubling down. And I think the real dangerous place you end up when you are flying by the seat of your pants, you know, you might not know the people who put astronauts on the moon, right? There were plenty of things that weren't known at that time that are very hazardous to, to human beings and, in space, you know, we just ignored even obvious, we, we ignored knowledge at the time 
for achieving a goal. And we did achieve that goal and we learned more because of it. Putting people in harm's way, you know, people died <laughs> putting astronauts in space on the moon. And even after the fact, and even after the fact, you know, um, but all to main, all of that was fueled by, well, who else is going to do it? You know, who else can do it? You know, we can do it. And it doesn't seem to matter how many people died or how many people are going to die to cancer and all these other horrible illnesses that you can get from being exposed to the, you know, unshielded in space. Um, and then you just keep pushing forward. I, I guess, do you get what I'm trying to drive at here, I guess, is that what happens when that reality wall comes up and we run into a circumstance where it doesn't matter? You can't just feels good your way out of it, you know? And I think that's the ultimate argument against thing hyphen optimism, you know? Me being the self-avowed techno-optimist that I am, you know, I at least have to acknowledge that. And that's one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot to try to check that is just because I perceive things a certain way or just because I have perceived things a certain way doesn't mean that's the way they'll always be you know and technology technological advancements have always been better for humanity i think as a general statement most people would probably agree with that it, it, in the general rule sure there are specific instances where it wasn't you know but as a general rule it's been better for us but what happens when we reach that threshold i think the the big problem will be that we won't acknowledge the wall because I think that's always the first thing people do is when you when you're when your biases no longer pay off, the delusion becomes a lot easier than just accepting the truth, you know. Right. And I think, you know, when we run into things like with the way social media is these days, you know, we've talked about technology being great for people, but then but now we're all starting to kind of wake up to some of the problems and you might say that the problems are beginning to outweigh the benefit. You know, but technology's always been better. Don't forget. And so I guess the real question will be is how do you reach a, like, what is a steady state that you can get in or a, or a state in which you can get that you're still making progress, but not blindly, you know? And I think that kind of goes back to what you were talking about is at some point you have to acknowledge doing the most, doing the shortest turnaround thing of, well, let's just do science for progress sake, you know, but doing science for science's sake. I think that might be the answer. I don't know what you think about that. You need me to rewind my last 20 minutes of word vomit? To... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Encore with philosophers. Um <laughs> I guess the point I'm trying to say is like, how do you get to that point where, you know, and not necessarily how you get to that point, but how do you optimize the balance of that? Or is it optimizable? Or are we bound to go through these cycles where we get overconfident and we shoot forward great leaps? And I mean, that's and how equilibrium is reached is by the pendulum swinging, but friction bringing it to a stop. Um, yeah, we're we're starting to to turn around now. I don't know that we'll go through that many swings, really, because people. I mean, so people love their technology, so there's always going to be that pressure to push it toward the pro technology side, and then there is now becoming a you know just a little bit of friction about uh, you know undesirable results from from modern technology and people choosing voluntarily to you know use technology and different ways and, and abstain from the, the things that they don't like about it. Um, or at least reduce the amount of time they spend doing those things. Um, and so I think, I don't know, I think we will, I, I think it's more likely that instead of swinging to really equilibrium, we will creep asymptotically toward the equilibrium in this case as, because people have to overcome their natural desire to use it anyway. I could see that. And I, and I think the pendulum's already swung once. Um, if you look at the nuclear age, or, the, or they didn't call it that, the atomic, the atomic age, age yes. people were all gung-ho about the about 
atomic energy, you know, let's just use this new technology for everything. It could solve all our problems. And so we barreled forward straight into a couple of natural uh, of disasters and then the threat of nuclear war. And then we were like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and then we really downswung how we use that technology to a point where I think we actually, the pendulum actually swung back the other way. Yeah. So we have swung too far the other way with respect to nuclear technology. Yeah. People are just t- like, I, I grew up, uh, I didn't grow people up. People talk about building a new nuclear power plant and they're like, oh, yeah, it's dangerous. It's going to give us all cancer just from being there. It's like, no, no, it's not how that works. But if it does, you know, and then, and then the uh, good old, what if it blows up? Oh, it won't. <laughs> right. It's not how that works. <laughs> But all it takes is one instance of something like that and the technology to really throw the pendulum the other way when people reject it. But um, who knows? I mean, I would like to see us asymptotically approach an equilibrium. That would be wonderful. And I think it couldn't come any sooner given how quickly technology is advancing, you know? And, uh, you know, because technology ain't slowing down, you know, especially once we reach this point where new technology makes developing newer technology easier you know we've kind of reached that point where we are devoting we've always done that though i guess you could say but with each new leap in technology the newer technologies you can bring about because of it that that next leap is almost uh that's what i'm looking for here exponentially abound again so but yeah i think that kind of buttons that up a good that we, we've reached equilibrium on this one i don't want the pendulum to swing too far so uh, i guess with that all being said do you have anything else you want to add philosophers philosophers <laughs>